So we turn our attention this morning to Obadiah. We're in an uh, ongoing study this summer and next summer called Who You Call in the Minor Prophets. And we've been working our way through uh, the first of four this summer. And then, well, yeah, the first of four this summer, and then we'll do the rest of the Minor Prophets next summer. We've already looked at Hosea, Joel, and Amos in the last uh, six weeks. And then starting today, we've got two weeks in the book of Obadiah. Now, a couple of interesting things about Obadiah. Well, you might find them, I find them interesting. This is the shortest book in the Old Testament. So just for reference, uh, you're looking at 20. 21 verses. We just read 16 of them. We're only sort of not looking at the last few, and we'll look at those next week in conjunction with the rest. Uh, it's a short book. There is, uh, <clears throat> unlike some of the books we've looked at, once again, there is some question about authorship and some question about timeline. So we know based on the content of the book that the book was written uh, prophetically towards uh, the, the people of Edom, which I'll talk about in a second. And it was written after a conquest of Jerusalem. But there are a couple of those uh, because there are sections in the book of Obadiah that align almost exactly with portions of the book of Jeremiah. I think it probably makes more sense that this book and this prophecy happened uh, after the fall of Jerusalem or the fall of Judah to the Babylonians. There are some who will date it at an earlier time, at an earlier fall, uh, but I think because of the similarity between Jeremiah and what we see in Obadiah, it's more likely that this is a little bit later. A lot of you probably don't care about that, but my point in saying it is that there are some questions about exactly when it was written. There are some questions about exactly who wrote it. The word Obadiah, the name, which is a common name uh, for the people of God, that's a common Hebrew name, actually just means the servant of the Lord or the servant of Yahweh. So not only was that a proper name some of the time, but it was also just a title that people would use to refer to themselves and others. It's kind of a generic term in some ways. It's a good term, but it's not necessarily easy to point exactly to who this particular Obadiah was. And it's possible that the person who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to deliver this prophecy wasn't actually even named Obadiah properly, but was a servant of Yahweh and therefore is referred to as an Obadiah. Does that make sense? So don't get lost in all of that sort of thing, but just know there is some question about authorship. There's some question about the time in which it was given, but the emphasis and the point of the book is actually very clear. We're going to look at that in two parts this week and next week. Um, it is a book, I will say, number one, that I've never taught before. And I don't think that's probably very uncommon. I actually don't think many people look at Obadiah, right? When you look at it uh, in these 21 verses, it can be the sort of book that you're like, I don't really know who the Edomites are. And by the way, if you don't know who the Edomites are, that's because they've been utterly wiped from the face of the earth. They no longer exist, as the book foretells, right? The Edomites are no longer a people. And you might say, well, I don't really understand the relevance of a book like Obadiah to my life life because I don't know them. I don't know what they did. I live in a different time. doesn't feel like this has anything to do with me. The book of Obadiah is a book of judgment on the people of Edom, but it's a book of judgment on the people of Edom that was delivered to the people of Judah, which is interesting also. God's talking about judgment for the Edomites, but he's declaring that to his own people. So it's, it's not necessarily a prophetic book that was declared to foreign people. It's a book about foreign people that was declared to God's people. And we'll talk about the significance of that next week. Specifically this morning, as we look at this, the overarching emphasis of the book, this is the thing I want to hammer home this morning in the time we have, is that this book of judgment upon Edom, which by the way is also called Seir, that only makes it more confusing. When you see in the Bible, you see the word Seir, S-E-I-R, that's the same people group, right? The Edomites and the people of Seir are the same. 
It's an illustration of pride, and it's a judgment against pride, which leads to, and we'll see this in the book, which leads to, at its best, an indifference towards the suffering of others, and at its worst, a participation in the suffering of others, right? God judges the people of Edom because of their arrogance and the way in which their arrogance has caused them to not care about the suffering of the people of Judah or worse yet, to participate in the suffering of Judah. So there's a very great relevance for us and we'll see in verses 15 and 16 that there's a pivot. He doesn't just, the prophet, whoever this is, Obadiah, uh, the prophet doesn't just judge the Edomites, he uses the Edomites as an illustration of all people for whom arrogance might cause them to become indifferent or participatory in the suffering of their fellow men. Does that make sense? Anyone who in their own pride can kind of step back and go, I don't really care about what's happening to other people, or in some cases, I'm going to participate in the judgment of other people for what I can get out of it. There is a judgment in the book of Obadiah for that kind of thinking. God says in no uncertain terms that he will not tolerate that kind of uh, approach, right? That what he's looking for is a loyalty to and an advocacy for the suffering. Now, I was reminded of this in uh, like real easy terms. You'll understand, I think, immediately. I went to Target yesterday to stock up on a couple of supplies, right? Uh, I was with a ton of other people from Fullerton who were also stocking up on supplies. And mainly I was there because I just don't know how to read the news, right? I just don't know how to read the news about this hurricane. I'm not totally sure if it's going to be a big deal or is it not going to be a big deal? Is it going to be the worst storm we've ever seen? Is it going to be this uh, deadly thing? Or is it going to be like, no big deal? But I thought, I'm just going to go and get a case of water. I'm going to get some toilet paper. I'll grab some things, whatever, just to be ready. And as I'm at the Target and I'm buying this stuff, I'm standing with people who are all expressing the same sentiment. Like, is this storm going to be a big deal or not going to be a big deal? Like, do we even need this extra water? We might not need it. It might not matter. And I realized in those moments that in the past, the reason why we're all confused is because we just don't get this kind of weather very often. Like, this is a new thing for us. There has not been a warning like this since 1939, right? So for us, we don't do this regularly and we're not really sure how to respond. But I will tell you that regularly in other parts of the world, we hear stories about hurricanes or tropical storms or whatever. And I will tell you that many times when I'm watching the news reports of the people who are unprepared in those storms, there is a little bit of judginess on my part, right? And I go, hey, you know, you live on the Gulf of Mexico or hey, you live in Florida. Like, why didn't you buy some water? Why didn't you buy some toilet paper? Why are you camped out on the roof of your house? Didn't you know this storm was coming? They've been telling you for months. And I realized that probably the people who get stuck in storms in Florida are people just like me yesterday who are going, is this going to be a thing or is it not going to be a thing? You know what I mean? I'm judging them from a distance, but they don't know how to read the news any better than I know how to read the news. And it's entirely possible that later today, some of you will have to come and rescue me off the roof of my house, right? What God is judging the people of Edom for is this distancing of themselves from the suffering of their fellow human beings. And what makes that worse, and it's complicated in this case, is that the Edomites, even though they are ancestral enemies of the people of Israel, they are also the relatives of the people of Israel. So one of the things you don't want to miss as we look at the book of Obadiah is that this judgment upon Edom is coming upon the descendants 
of Esau. Now, if you've been in this church for a while, it hasn't been that long since we studied the book of Genesis. And so you may be familiar, but I want to refresh your memory with, with a brief sort of recapping of the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, twin brothers who were born uh, to Isaac and Rebekah, right? And Jacob and Esau are born. Esau is the first and Jacob is the second by just a couple of seconds, whatever. But they come out wrestling. And in fact, God had predicted that they would be wrestling their whole lives. Uh, they come out of the womb and it's not too long before their parents are showing preferential treatment. Not only that, they're very different boys. So Jacob and Esau are very different in the way they live their lives and the way they conduct themselves. Famously, you probably know the story about the day when uh, Esau comes home from a hunt and he's famished and he thinks he's going to die if he doesn't get something to eat. And Jacob has prepared a nice stew there. And Esau says, give me some of that stew. And Jacob says, I'll give you some of the stew if you trade me your birthright, right? The portion of your inheritance that belongs to you because you're the firstborn by a couple of seconds. You give me that birthright and I'll give you the stew. And Esau goes, what do I care about my birthright? Just give me the food, right? So he eats the food and he forsakes, the way the Bible talks about it, he forsakes his birthright, which creates even more tension between the two brothers. As time goes on, there's a day that comes when Isaac, their father, is going to bestow upon Esau, the firstborn, the blessing, right? The blessing of God that's passed from Abraham to Isaac, right, goes to Esau because he's the oldest. And you may remember Jacob puts fur on his arms because Esau was a hairy guy and he, and he makes himself smell like wild game and he sneaks into his blind father's tent and he pretends to be his brother and he steals Esau's blessing, which creates a hatred among them, right? There is this hatred, this animosity. And ultimately Esau says he's going to kill Jacob. Jacob runs for his life and lives in a whole other place for a long time. And when they are finally reunited, Jacob is pretty sure that Esau is going to murder him, right? Because there has been animosity and there has been hatred. There has been theft and deceit and trickery, right? There's all this frustration between these two brothers. But by the time we get to Genesis 33, and you can look this up for your homework this week. In Genesis 33, the two are reconciled, right? When Esau and Jacob finally come together, all of Jacob's fears about being killed by his brother are dispelled by the fact that Esau shows up and he embraces his brother. And there's this beautiful reunion. There's forgiveness and reconciliation. But despite the reconciliation that we see in Genesis 33, there then continues to be this legacy of generational conflict between Esau's descendants and the descendants of Jacob. We're going to come back to that in a minute and talk about why that happens. But the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. And there are tons of references in the Old Testament to different conflicts. In fact, we read about one of them in Amos when we were studying that two weeks ago. Amos is one of the, uh, excuse me, in Amos, Edom is one of the people groups that is judged because of the way they treat their brothers. So not only in the book of Obadiah do we have God judging the Edomites for their arrogance, which leads to indifference at best at the suffering of others and participation in the suffering of others at worst, but it's amplified and made even worse by the fact that the Edomites are the distant relatives of the people of Judah or the people of God, and they should be treating each other like family. So God's judgments here are escalated because of who Edom is. Right? Because even though they've been enemies, they should be family. And so we see this judgment. In the first nine verses of Obadiah, we see God's judgment upon the people of Edom. Let me read it to you. It says this. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. This is verse 1. We've heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. 
Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? There it is. God is pointing at the source. Now he's going to go on later, and we'll look at this in a minute. He's going to go on and talk about their indifference. Talk about their focus on personal gain. Talk about their gloating. Talk about all of that. But everything else God judges them for is rooted in this pride. There is this pride of the people of Edom who say, we're safe and we can do whatever we want and we're untouchable. It is their pride that leads them to the indifference and the participation in the suffering of others. He says in verse 3, the pride of your heart, Edom, has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been... uh, Sorry, you know what? This is a weird thing that happens every once in a while. My Bible just froze. Does that ever happen to you? Here it comes back. He says, though you soar aloft like eagles, like the eagle, verse 4, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, uh, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you and have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you and have no under, you have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom? And understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. He says, There's a day coming when you will be completely eradicated because in your pride you sat there up in your fortress in the hills and you thought you were safe and that you could look down on the judgment of other people or you could look down upon the punishment of other people or the suffering of other people and remain either aloof or then engage yourself and feel like there wouldn't be any consequence for that. I just want to stop for a second and have us sort of evaluate our own pride. Because in the places in our lives, as Christians today in 2023, the places in our lives where we are indifferent to the suffering of our fellow human beings, or even worse, sometimes we're participatory in the suffering of our fellow human beings. In every case, that also that always comes from a place of pride. When I, on the West Coast, am able to look at people on the East Coast and say, why didn't you knuckleheads get ready for the hurricane? What is that? Well, it's, it's not me operating from a place of humility. It's not me op- operating from a place of empathy. It's not me op- operating from a place of kindness or generosity or care for my fellow human beings on the East Coast. It's me saying, if I were you, I would have done it different. So that then when the tropical storm comes to my neighborhood, I'm going like, oh no, turns out I don't know what I'm doing either, right? The reality is that human beings are the same. We're in the same boat. We're doing our best. We're trying to figure it out. And in our pride, there are times where we look at other people and we either say, I don't care about what's happening to them. Or sometimes even worse, we say, I'm glad that's happening to them. And sometimes even worse, we say, I want to be a part of making sure that happens to them. So I want you to think about your pride. I want you to think about that part of you that causes you to look at other people And to look down at them from your safe place in the rocks, from the safe place in the fortress, right? There is this pronouncement of judgment. God condemns their violence and their indifference, their theft, their gloating, but pride is the source. Their hatred and judging and shaming and dismissal, it shows a misunderstanding of themselves, right? 
Let me say that a different way. Our hatred, our judging, our shaming, and our dismissal shows a misunderstanding of ourselves. When we're hating and judging and dismissing other people, it's because we fundamentally misunderstood our solidarity with our fellow man and their brokenness. And we found sort of a comfortable perch from which to look down at the plight of other people. He goes on to talk about specific things. And I said, we'd look at this. Let's look at the next five verses. In in verse 10, it says this. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on that day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. He said, you should have been like a brother. You should have been like a family member. And instead you were like the robbers. You were like the thieves. You were like the pillagers. I couldn't tell the difference between you and the attackers. He says in 12, do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. He talks about their violence. He talks about the fact that they're aloof and acting like strangers instead of like brothers and sisters. He talks about their gloating and their joy at the suffering of other people. He talks about them taking advantage for their own personal gain, right? He says when their gates were pillaged and opened by foreigners, right? People come in to ransack them. You go in the open gates and instead of trying to repair or instead of trying to do some sort of relief work there, you take what you can get while the plundering is good. And he says what's even worse is the fact that some of the people of Judah survived this oppression, right? Some of them escaped And then what you, the Edomites, did is you went and found those escapees. You went and found the survivors and you gathered them up and you handed them over to the Babylonians, right? God says, this is not good. This violence, this being aloof, this acting like strangers when you should be like brothers, this gloating and joy, taking advantage for personal gain, this betrayal. Can't help but wonder, you know, we we understand that the people of God in this particular case are being punished, right? The people of Jerusalem are being pillaged because of their own sin for different reasons. So it's even possible that the reason the Edomites were going around and gathering the refugees or gathering the survivors and turning them over to their enemies is that maybe they thought it was their job to help God punish them, right? There are times in our own lives where we feel like God needs a little bit of help where we have looked at our fellow men and women and we've decided that they deserve judgment and that maybe the judgment that God is enacting isn't good enough or fast enough or thorough enough. And so he needs our help to make sure that people get judged effectively. It's possible that the Edomites from their perch looked out and thought, none of the people of Jerusalem should survive this punishment of God. So we're going to give God a hand. And they went down and gathered those people. And the only reason I speculate that way is that I've had conversations with Christians who look at the brokenness of their fellow man, both with kind of a gloating and a joy over the punishment that is to come, but sometimes with the judgmentalism of God himself to say, God isn't punishing swiftly enough, or he isn't punishing thoroughly enough, and therefore, as a follower of Jesus, I'm going to add my own punishment to the mix. God says, you've thoroughly misunderstood who you are, and who they are, and the fact that you're the same, right? You shouldn't be acting like strangers, you should be acting like brothers, 
He condemns them for this. And then uh, it, before we have the ability, and I, you're not doing this anyway because of the way I set this up, but if the temptation in reading Obadiah is to look at the punishment of Edom and go, oh man, those Edomites were jerks and they, they get what's coming to them, right? Good for, good for God to give those Edomites what's coming. Before you have the opportunity to, to look at this from a distance as a judgment on just Edom, look at verse 15. There in 15, there's a pivot. It's kind of a, a, a hinge in this book. He says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. God says, this isn't just for Edom. This specific prophecy is for Edom, but I'm talking here to everybody, God says, right? I'm talking to everyone who is tempted in their pride to be indifferent or participatory, or anything on that spectrum in the suffering of their fellow human beings. He says, this is not who I am. This is not how I want you to respond. And there is a judgment for the Edomites because of that. The application for us is incredibly clear. And and in fact, I, I don't need to spend much time on this, I think, because I think we get it. The application is this. God cares about our loyalty to and our advocacy for other people. God cares about our loyalty to and our advocacy for other people. He cares about that, right? He cares that we would stand up for other people who are broken. And part of the reason why he cares that we would stand up for other people who are broken is because he stood up for us and we also are broken. We talk in this church a lot about the idea of revolutionary kindness, right? Revolutionary kindness, a kindness that will create a revolution among our culture and in our city, right? And that revolutionary kindness is rooted in humble solidarity. It's a base understanding that everybody I meet is just as busted as me and needs Jesus just as much as I do, right? And therefore I have this ground level from which to engage with every other human on the planet because we have that in common. We all need a redeemer and we all get it right some of the time and we all get it wrong some of the time. One day somebody else is getting punished and tomorrow it's probably going to be me. It's funny, I was, uh, I was, I'm, I'm hesitant to admit this to you, but I had a, a moment a couple of weeks ago where I felt four emotions in rapid succession, almost blended together. They came so quick. I was coming down Baston Cherry from, uh, from State College up here on the hill. You know what I'm talking about? There's kind of that slope that comes down. You can actually see our church from the top of that hill. Uh, I'm coming down the hill and you know how it happens sometimes on a road. You get behind two cars that are going the same speed and neither of those speeds are the speed you want to go. You know what I'm talking about? Now, I'm not going to go too deep into this with regard to how fast I wanted to go, but neither of these cars were going as fast as I wanted to go. And so I'm behind one and I'm probably a little bit closer. I'm, you know, I'm as busted as the next guy. So don't send me your emails. I'm behind this guy and I'm maybe just giving him a little encouragement with my proximity. Does that make sense? So I'm, uh, I'm up close on this other car. And so he speeds up and now we're both going pretty fast, fast enough that pretty soon I'm going to be able to get around the other slow car and get ahead of this guy. But before I can get around him, now we're both going pretty fast. We go past that park that's up there on Bass and Cherry. And I notice in my peripheral vision that there is a police officer on a motorcycle that's got his, uh, his scanner out, right? And he has clocked us and I see him, you know, you can tell, right? I can, you can tell. You see him push, uh, put his scanner away and start up his bike to pull out. And you're like, that's it. I'm caught, right? I know what the speed limit is here. I know it's 55. I know I was going faster than that. And I was tailgating. And I have this emotion in my heart of like, why won't this guy in front of me go faster? Right? Then the, here's the next emotion. The next emotion is, 
oh no, I'm going to get a ticket. I'm caught for breaking the law because the policeman is now pulled out behind me. The third emotion is this, relief, because the policeman turns on his lights and goes around me and gets the guy in front of me. And I feel like, yeah, yes. And then I think, well, there are actually five emotions. The next thing I think, this all comes really fast. The next thing I think is, I made that guy go so fast. And then the fifth thing I think is, I'm glad the police are finally ticketing people in this area because they drive like maniacs here, right? (laughs) Boom, 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 boom. All that stuff happens in rapid succession. What is going on in my heart, right? And I hope you're laughing because you feel it and not because I'm the only one who's ever done this stupid thing. But man, think about how rapidly I moved from let's go faster to, oh no, I'm caught, right? To like, oh yeah, I got away with doing the wrong thing, right? Right? To like, oh, I I made this guy do the wrong thing to, oh, I'm glad that guy's getting busted for doing the wrong thing. It's amazing how quickly our hearts turn to judge other people when in fact we're in the very same boat. Can you imagine if I was a guy who held like a deep-seated hatred for bald men? Imagine how ludicrous that would be, right? If every time you talk to me, I'm like, oh, all these bald guys everywhere, they're so stupid, right? You'd be like, dude, you know you don't have any hair, right? That is what happens when human beings become judgy of other human beings in their brokenness. God says your violence and your aloofness, you're acting like strangers and not brothers, you're gloating and joy, you're taking advantage for personal gain and your betrayal. It will not stand. I expect my people to advocate for and to be loyal to other people in their brokenness, even those who are facing judgment, even those who are facing judgment. Because if you're going to opt out of this particular message in Obadiah, this is probably the way you wiggle out. You probably wiggle out by saying, well, you know, I don't have to advocate for and feel empathy for people who are in trouble and who've done something wrong and who are being punished for that. Well, let's remember that the people of Jerusalem who just been overthrown by, by the Babylonians were overthrown by the Babylonians because of their sin. So they were being punished in that moment. I'll remind you of something we looked at when we studied the book of Daniel. And I love this in Daniel. But in Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar receives that vision from God that says his throne's going to be taken away from him and that he's going to be run out and live like a wild animal for seven seasons of time. And he comes to Daniel and he says, can you tell me what this dream means? I love what Daniel says in response to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 verse 19. When he comes to interpret the dream, he says this, Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. We talked about it when we studied Daniel, but this would have been the moment that Daniel could have been like, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who took me into slavery, the guy who destroyed my homeland. Hey, guess what? God's coming for you, dude. And it was only a matter of time. And I can't wait for one to see you go down, right? That isn't what Daniel does. Nebuchadnezzar's being punished in Daniel 4. But what we see from the heart of Daniel is is a sense of solidarity and empathy. He says, I wish the message I'm about to deliver to you was for somebody else. I wish it was for your enemy. Why do you think that Daniel is able to take that approach with Nebuchadnezzar? It's because Daniel is only in Babylon because he himself is being punished. He knows what it's like to suffer judgment. And he has a sympathy and an empathy, a care for those who are under judgment. Because we all sit under judgment at times, right? 
So there is this kindness in Daniel. He shows compassion to Nebuchadnezzar, even in his suffering. Here are my questions for us as we look at Obadiah and as we understand sort of the basics of this book. God saying this kind of indifference or this kind of complicity is not acceptable. My first question is a personal one, and there's actually a couple of questions tied into it. But I just want to ask you today, church, to think about this in response to Obadiah. Where where has your pride caused you to betray your fundamental brotherhood or sisterhood with other broken humans? Can you identify that in your own life? Places where your, your pride or your arrogance, you're on your lofty perch looking down at the suffering of others and you find indifference or complicity there? I wonder if you can identify where violence or indifference or gloating or taking advantage or betrayal has become normal for you. Are there places where you've decided God needs your help in judging or punishing others? Have you decided that God's not judging fast enough or he's not judging deep enough or hard enough that he's not swift enough and so he just needs a little shove from you and that's manifested itself in unkindness or indifference or hatred towards your fellow human beings because you think you've got to take God's judgments into your own hands? What the book of Obadiah tells us is that God doesn't need any help in his judgments. He doesn't need any help in his execution of justice. What he needs for us to do is to treat our fellow human beings as brothers and sisters. So I would want us to look at our pride. I would want us to look at the places where indifference or gloating or violence have become normal, where we've decided that God needs our help. And then one step deeper in that, as I was reflecting on this, I I stopped to sort of think about, and, and I think your first answer will be no, but let me ask you this. Are there humans you hate? Let me ask it a different way. Are there humans who disgust you? I know there are, because some of you tell me this all the time, right? I get emails from you and you tell me how disgusting you think certain people are, certain political views or certain whatever. Are there people that disgust you? Are they broken like you? They are. They're broken like me. I wonder if that hatred, that, that disgust, I wonder if it's appropriate for a follower of Jesus. Actually, I don't wonder. I know it's not appropriate for a follower of Jesus. Are there those you want to see punished? And are, those, are, are there those that you were punishing on God's behalf? These are all just sort of things to think about. That, that has to do with the way we respond to Obadiah personally. On a more corporate level, I'll say that within Christendom, sometimes what we see in Obadiah is happening even with some of the different sort of sections of Christianity. I grew up in a fundamental Baptist house. That's not a surprise. A lot of you know it. I don't have a, I don't have a particular criticism for the fundamental Baptist. It was a very legalistic home. Uh, I, I had never heard a Beatles song until I was... As a freshman in high school, we thought that rock and roll was evil. And I can go on and on about some of the things that were happening uh, in, in my particular life. But I grew up in a Baptist house. And you guys, uh, this isn't a joke. This is serious. I absolutely believed that Presbyterians were evil because they drank alcohol, right? And I remember as a kid being told like, oh, the Presbyterians, they don't take the Bible seriously because they like to drink wine. And like, we would talk about Presbyterians as like, look, 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 which I didn't know any Presbyterians. I'd never met any Presbyterians. I was just a kid who grew up in a household where Presbyterians were demonized because of their alcohol consumption, right? I grew up in a household where charismatics, and I won't even go like, like charismatics, like on the far end of the spectrum. I'll say one time my family and I went to an Imperials concert, right? Um, Which is not like a, that's not like a, real heavy metal kind of deal, right? If you remember the Imperials from the 70s and 80s, uh, that's just like Christian contemporary music. I went to an Imperials concert and I could not enjoy the concert because the people sitting around us had their hands in the air the whole time, right? 
And I thought, these are evil people. I'm surrounded by these evil charismatics, right? With their hands in the air, right? What's happening there? Well, well, that isn't necessarily, as a kid, that's not necessarily my personal judgment of other people. That's that I'm in a milieu, right? That's that I'm in a context in which other people are demonized. My second question for you broadly this morning is to look at the people of Edom and say, this hatred that they had of the people of Judah wasn't even Esau's hatred. In Genesis 33, Esau puts his hatred to bed. Esau and Jacob hug each other and they are reconciled. So there is this lingering hatred and indifference and injustice that happens not because that's what Esau told all of his descendants to do, but in spite of what Esau demonstrated. That all of a sudden there's a culture of indifference or a culture of hatred that is perpetuated. I wonder, in your life, is there a culture or a tradition or a family tradition that's determining your posture towards other people that you need to walk back, that you need to look at again. I'm really thankful that at this point, just so you know, I know a lot of Presbyterians and I know a lot of Charismatics who deeply love Jesus and they put their hands in the air when they sing worship songs. Oh no, right? I know some Presbyterians who are really smart about the wine they drink, right? But I also know other people, like it's not the kind of thing that should characterize them. I'm so glad that there was a point in my life where I, as an individual, reevaluated some of the traditions and the perceptions in my culture to recognize whether or not they aligned with the heart of God. It is possible for you to grow up in a system that looks at particular people a particular way and that particular perception is wrong and needs to be reevaluated. That's what I'm advocating for. The people of Obadiah, uh, the, the people that Obadiah is speaking to here, the Edomites, were born in Edom. They didn't have a choice in that, right? And the people of Judah were born in Judah. They didn't have a choice in that. But they did have a choice to reevaluate some of the cultural things that were just the norm for them. And that's what they're being held accountable for, right? Are we continuing a fight that we don't even fully comprehend or that should have been settled centuries ago? As a Christian, I am called to be an ambassador of the kingdom of God, bearing a message of reconciliation. So listen, let me just remind you of a couple things. First Corinthians chapter two, verse one, Paul says, I brothers, when I came to you, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians 5.16, it says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. As a Christian, a follower of Jesus, I am an ambassador of the kingdom of God entrusted with the message of reconciliation. And any other allegiance or alignment I have to a tradition or a culture or a faction or a political affiliation that cancels out the message of reconciliation should not be my primary allegiance, if it should be my allegiance at all. Anything that will dilute or ruin the message of reconciliation has to go. Because the message of reconciliation is the only thing God has called me to carry as an ambassador. So anything that waters that down or distorts it or mars the message of reconciliation has to be a faction of which I am no longer a part. Right? Are there places where you're standing in silent indifference 
or even worse, in violent complicity with the suffering of others. James chapter 4, verse 17 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him is sin. I think it's possible that there could be some of us in this particular family who would go, I don't hate anybody. I'm not disgusted by anybody. I know there are people suffering out there, but I'm not mad at any of them. Well, I would just want to remind you also that just not being mad at somebody isn't the same thing as caring about them. Just not hating somebody is not the same thing as serving them, right? Just not gathering up their refugees and sending them back to the enemy is not the same thing as inviting them into your life and treating them like sisters and brothers. Is there, are there places in our lives where there is silent indifference or violent complicity with the suffering of others? This humble solidarity with our fellow man demands that we come to the aid of other human beings, that we speak up and show up, that we set aside our own interests for the glory of God and the good of others. If you are a brother and sister, here's the bottom line out of Obadiah. If you're a brother and sister, human being created in the image of God, an image bearer just like every other human on the planet, then you shouldn't be acting like a stranger. You should be acting like a family member. He looks at them and says, Edom, it's so weird that in the day of need, you seemed just like the the strangers instead of like family. For the followers of Christ, there is a call for us to act like family and not like strangers. Philippians 2.4 says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Ephesians 4.31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. First John three seventeen says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Galatians chapter six, two says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The reality is that in the book of Obadiah, in verse 15, when he's talking not just to the people of Edom, but to all the nations of the world, he says this, The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. He says, as you have done, so it will be done to you. There is something for us to take serious. God takes this very seriously. Matthew, this is uh, Jesus speaking In Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, it says, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? What this implies in Jesus' story is that the people of God, the righteous people he's talking about, were serving their fellow human beings without knowing they were serving God, right? They were serving their fellow human beings because they were fellow human beings. So much so that when Jesus says, hey, God's going to say to you, hey, thanks for serving these people in my name. They'll be like, when do we do that? Here's what Jesus says. The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I think sometimes we serve other people because we feel like we're obligated to because when we serve them, we're serving Jesus, right? That isn't what Jesus is describing in Matthew. What he's describing are people who actually care about other human beings and in the service of other human beings are glorifying God in the pursuit of the good of others. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 13 says, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. I would want to say as we look at the first part of Obadiah this week and the second next week, 
That in Proverbs, when it says you have to be paying attention to the, to the, <laughs> the cry of the poor, that's not just talking about the financially impoverished. It's talking about those who are poor in every regard. That we would come alongside them and that we would be not indifferent and not violent, but that we would be generous and kind, that we would display the heart of Christ in the lives of other people because he has forgiven us that we then would be advocating for and loyal to our fellow human beings. The first part of Obadiah speaks to the idea of betrayal by brothers. Next week, we'll finish up by looking at what it feels like to be betrayed by your brothers. So come back for that next week. Would you pray with me as we finish this morning? God, I thank you. As always, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the ways in which this study in Obadiah was provocative in my own life, the ways in which it was a catalyst to reevaluate places in my own thinking where there are biases and places where I'm judgy and places where I just need to have the light turned on um, in my own life because sometimes I sit aloof in my rocky fortress and I look at the pain of other people, and I see it from a distance. God, will you help us to be people who, as ambassadors of a message of reconciliation, leave our rocky fortresses, the arrogance that so easily comes to us, and instead come down to walk the streets where people are actually in need and need to be loved and served and provided for and cared for and empathized with and listened to. God, will we be your ambassadors in that reconciliation as we call people to put their faith in you as well? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.